Chris is talking about, <clears throat> thinking about coming out of retirement. I, I think I saw an article that Tom Brady's thinking about coming out of retirement again. So if he can come out of retirement to play football, you know, anything's possible. Well, today, after a three-week break, uh, baptism and Palm Sunday and Easter, we return to our, our study in the uh, book of Acts. And uh, today, we, we come to a passage that records a defining moment in the history of the, the early church. Uh, Jesus had commanded them in Acts 1-8 that they should be witnesses, not only Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And yet, up to this point, the church has primarily stayed in Jerusalem, and the gospel had been confined to Jewish people. That's about ready to change in a big way. As the gospel has been preached among the Jewish people, we've seen the, the growing tension between the Jewish religious leaders and, and, and the, the Christian church. Um, in today's passage, that tension boils over and Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Christian faith, which, which begins a process of Christianity becoming untethered from Judaism. And, and that's necessary if Christianity is ever going to become anything more than just a Jewish sect. Up to this point is... People from a Jewish background were coming to the faith. Um, they continued to live out their Christian, Christian faith sort of in their Jewish forms, right? They continued to go to temple. They continued to do these kind of things. It was not clear yet that Christian was, Christianity was a brand new, new thing, a different thing, and it needed to be untethered from Judaism. But with the, the martyrdom of Stephen, a, a break begins between the church and Judaism that will allow Christian, Christianity to truly become a worldwide movement for all people. One of the commentators made the point that Stephen died for the difference between Judaism's approach to God and Christianity's. Stephen died for the difference between Judaism's approach to Christianity or God and, and, and Christianity's. Judaism's approach was wrapped up, of course, in the old covenant and the forms of the old covenant, right? temple, law, all of these kinds of things. <clears throat> Christianity was, also, of course, wrapped up only in Christ. And so Luke wants us to understand that this break between the church and Judaism was, was fundamentally about Christianity's new and different approach to God through Jesus Christ alone, with, without need for priests and temples and animal sacrifices. Because of Jesus, the heavens are wide open. So I want to look at this passage and uh, want to look at the, the opposition, kind of the, the, the charge that's brought against Stephen and the things he preaches, and then look at how he responds to that, his defense, and then ultimately uh, look at uh, the words that he will say that gets him killed, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. I'm going to summarize a lot. We have 71 verses. Maybe you wonder why we didn't read the scripture today. 71 verses, that's why. And so uh, we're going to summarize a fair bit. But uh, hopefully you had a chance to read it this past week. If not, I'd encourage you to read it um, today. It's a fascinating passage. But uh, let's look at the opposition to the gospel, the opposition to what Stephen was, was preaching. You might remember if you've been with us in our study of Acts that uh, we were introduced in the, the first part of chapter 6 to Stephen. He was one of the seven from the Greek-speaking part of the church that had been appointed to help with the, the administration of care for <clears throat> the widows. But he was not just involved in that ministry of care. He, he had a ministry very similar to the apostles. I mean, he was teaching, he was performing signs and wonders. And so we read this, starting verse 8. 
It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up, and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so Stephen was from the Greek-speaking part of the church. It's, it's possible this, this synagogue of the freedmen, which is a Greek-speaking synagogue, possibly that was where he had connected in his, his Jewish faith. But, but whatever the case, men from this synagogue, they don't like what Stephen is teaching, so they, they dispute with him. And Luke doesn't tell us what Stephen was teaching, but we know that he came to faith under the preaching of the apostles. He was discipled through the teaching of the apostles, so he would have taught the things that they taught. Jesus crucified according to God's plan. Jesus buried and raised again from the dead on the third day. He would have been proclaiming forgiveness of sins through Jesus, and that because of this, a new way was open to the Father, access to God through Jesus Christ. This would have been the things that Stephen was preaching. It's what he had experienced. It's what he was preaching. This message of access to God, which didn't include temple. The temple was offensive to some from the synagogue of the freedmen. And so they seek to silence Stephen. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And he set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy, pla- holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. And uh, I think that's a reflection that he was one, that he walked in the spirit. The spirit was filling him. He was close to Jesus, and it was reflected in what they saw in him, even in this moment of hostility. But the general charge against Stephen is he was against Moses and against God, verse 11. The specific charge in verse 13 is that he never ceases to speak words against this holy place a temple, and he never ceases to speak words against the law. And so this charge, it's, it's really sort of a mix of distorted truth and false accusations. Um, Jesus had never predicted, the, or Jesus had never said he would destroy the temple, right? He predicted it, but he never said he would destroy it. And so Stephen was certainly not preaching that message. That is a falsehood. But the charge that he had said that Jesus would change the customs that Moses delivered uh, was, in fact, true, right? I mean, Jesus did come to change the customs of of the law. And so, I mean, Jesus was doing things like healing on the Sabbath. He was, and this just drove him crazy, right? Because he was changing the customs of Moses. Altogether, though, the the Jewish leaders, they, they, they heard these kind of things, and it sounded like blasphemous words spoken against God and against Moses, which was a capital offense. And so the high priest said, are these things so? And with that question, we come to Stephen's defense, which takes up most of chapter 7. It's the longest speech 
in the whole uh, of Acts. And so it suggests that to Luke, this is very, very important that he gives this much time to it. In his speech, uh, Stephen does a couple of things. First, he focuses on what the Old Testament said about the temple, about the law, as well as the land, these things that were incredibly important in the Jewish faith. These were forms that the Jewish people understood that this is how God showed up. This is where access to God was found. This is how, how, how God met with his people. But, but Stephen's going to challenge their thinking about those things that, that when they're rightly understood, they point to a greater fulfillment. That's the first thing he's going to do. The second thing he's going to do is confront the, the Jewish religious leaders that in crucifying the Messiah, they're just like their fathers. They, 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 they've done what the fathers have always done, silence God's messengers. That's kind of his message to them. So I want to, in a very quick way, uh, look at a couple passages. So let's look at what he says about the land, the law, and the, and the prophets. Just in terms of the land, he, he kind of goes through uh, Israel's history, and he talks about how God called Abraham, not when he was in the land, but when he was still in Mesopotamia. He talks about how God showed up when Joseph was in Egypt, how he blessed him and led him and did amazing things in Egypt uh, for, for, for Joseph. He talks about how um, when uh, <clears throat> he met with Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, uh, you know the story, right? God shows up, there's a burning bush, and he tells Moses, take your, your sandals off because the place you're standing is holy ground. And so they venerated the promised land, and yet God showed up there in the wilderness of Sinai, and it was holy ground. Wherever God showed up was holy. So that's what he's saying about the land. In terms of the law, uh, the most important thing that Stephen said is found in verse 37. In a section where he's talking about Moses, he says this, verse 37, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. Moses was a prophet. Moses was the giver of the law. God had worked through him to give the law to them. But this Moses, the giver of the law, made it clear that the law was not the final word from God. God would raise up another prophet like him. That's from Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet to which Moses speaks is Jesus. Stephen's point is if the people would understand the law... They would understand that it pointed to something in the future, another prophet. The, the law was never the ultimate final revelation of God. And so their law points to that. In addressing the temple, Stephen traces the, the history of the tabernacle. It's, it's kind of how they took it with them in the wilderness, how it came into the land, how eventually uh, uh, Solomon built the temple. And he concludes his comments by, by saying what King Solomon himself said at the dedication of the temple. And it's from 1 Kings 8.27, but in Acts 7.48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And, and it says, as the prophet says, and the remainder of that verse is from Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, which makes the point that God could never be contained in man-made houses. His point is that the temple never did, it never was meant to uh, contain God. Sure, it was a place where God said, I will show up there and I will meet with 
my people there, but it was never meant to be the, the, something that contained God or that it was the only place that, where God worked. The land, the law, the temple, all these things were important. And if you read it, though they say he speaks against them, you see that he actually speaks with real reverence and respect for these things. They had their place in God's redemptive plan, but he makes it clear that they were never meant to be kind of the last thing. They were never meant to limit God from doing a new thing. In fact, when rightly understood, they point to a greater fulfillment. So that's the first thing he does. Help them understand law, land, temple. But then the second thing he does is he, he boldly confronts the religious leaders that they, like their fathers, have always resisted the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Again, if you would read through chapter 7, that point, that example is all over the history of Israel that he recounts. But, but let me read just one example, starting verse 38. He speaks about what happened in the wilderness when, when God was giving the law to Moses. Moses is up on the mountain, and we read this in verse 38. This is the one, speaking of Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So there's respect, right? Living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what is becoming him, and they made a calf in those days. Stephen makes a point that at the very moment that God was meeting with Moses, and I mean amazing experience in the history of Israel, God giving the law, the people missed what God was doing. They refused to obey Moses and thus God. And Stephen confronts them with the truth that they, like their fathers, are now doing the very same thing. With this boldness and courage, he confronts them. And Stephen says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and they would have known that those were words that God spoke about his people in the wilderness who, who, who refused and refused and refused. And so Stephen uses those words against the, the, the Jewish people of his day. He says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Israel repeatedly missed what God was doing. The fathers killed those prophets who were proclaiming the coming of the righteous one, and the people he's speaking to had actually killed the righteous one. The very ones who are, are claiming that the law is so important, they failed to keep it. And so Stephen, he puts the land, the law, the temple in, the, in their proper place, and he, and he demonstrates that they were never meant to be God's final word in redemption history. And he confronts the current generation with the truth that they, like their fathers, instead of listening to God's messengers, they kill them. And the next thing that Stephen says will get him killed. He proclaims 
the truth of the gospel that in Jesus there is full, unfettered access to God. Look at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so in this very moment, God gives Stephen a, a glimpse of heaven. And, and this is not a vision. He's seen into heaven. He's seen the heavens open. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Usually it's written that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, right? But here he's standing. And commentators have different opinions about why he's standing. Some believe he is standing in, in, in a sort of welcome to Stephen, welcoming him into heaven. Others believe he stands as, as sort of an advocate, as a defender of Stephen uh, before the throne. Whatever the case, uh, Stephen sees what he knows to be true, and that is Jesus is the one who provides access to God. Because of Jesus, heavens are wide open. In Jesus, God has done a new thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of redemption history. He's the fulfillment to which the law and the temple pointed. So why hang on to an old system, right, where... In the Old Testament system, one man could go into the very holy of holies and meet in that very inner place where God's presence would be one time a year while everyone else stayed outside. Why follow an old system where daily there had to be animal sacrifices for forgiveness of sin when there has been one who has made the ultimate permanent payment for sin? In Christ, the heavens are open. Access to God For all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, is made available through the good news of the gospel that Stephen preached. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. It's like we're covering our ears. We cannot hear this blasphemy. And they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen died for the difference between Judaism's approach to God and Christianity's. Stephen died proclaiming the truth that in Jesus, there is full access to God. In Jesus, the heavens are wide open. And Luke spends so much time on this because he wants to understand us to understand this difference. This difference which created this necessary break with Judaism. Luke wants us to understand that we have full access to God through what he has done in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Before we talk about a couple of points of application, I want to make a couple of uh, just other observations. Um, first, I mean, there's so much in this passage. You, you could give a couple sermons on just Stephen alone, right? And uh, 
this, this sermon series is called Loyal to Jesus. And, and here is a man who models this unbelievable loyalty to Jesus. Can you imagine the pressure of standing before the Sanhedrin, the same people that crucified Jesus and the apostles have been there, and here he is standing there and refusing to budge even to the point of death. He is loyal to Jesus. He is loyal to the, to the gospel. And, and if you, you spent some time looking at Stephen, I mean, he is like Jesus in his life. And he is like Jesus in his death. Even the words that are on his heart, he's entrusting his spirit as Jesus did when he was crucified. And at the very moment they are throwing rocks at him, stoning him, he's, what's in his heart is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. He is an amazing disciple, loyal to Jesus. Lord, make me, make us more like Stephen. The other important thing that, that uh, I want to just mention is that part of what Luke does in this account is he in- introduces us to another figure who becomes incredibly important in the rest of the book of Acts, right? Saul, who becomes Paul. Luke goes on in, in chapter 8, and he, and he says this. He says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul approves of Stephen's execution. He becomes a central figure in uh, this early persecution of the church. But it's this persecution that finally spreads the church outside the walls of Jerusalem. They're not just staying there anymore. They're spread. And so as a result, Jesus' command to take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth, that is actually now initiated. And that's what we're going to see in the coming chapters of Acts. This necessary break between the church and Judaism, it, it begins here. And we will see it worked out and fleshed out and more deeply understood as we work through the pages of Acts. But, but what begins to be clear here is one doesn't have to be Jewish before becoming a Christian. And we'll see that more clearly as we go on. Let me spend the remainder of our time just mentioning a couple points of, of application. First, to those who maybe are not yet followers of Jesus, the message that Luke wants you to hear is that full access to God is available through Jesus alone. Full access to God is available through Jesus alone. I've known people in the past as I've had, you know, gospel conversations with them who've, who've sort of like, oh, you know, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I've made too many mistakes. I've, you know, I never grew up in the church. And, and they look at all these, they look at their behavior. They look at, have I kept the law and these kind of things? The message of this passage is that access to God is not found in any of those kind of things. It's not found in being good enough. It's not found in going to church enough. It's not found in following any kind of law. Access to God is in Jesus and Jesus alone through his death, burial, resurrection, everything he did to deal with our sin. 
access to God is through Jesus alone. And so the invitation to you is simply to turn away from your sin, repent of your sin, and by faith look to Jesus, trust him that he has made a provision for your sin. It's as simple as that if you would come to him in genuine faith. Full access to God is available through Jesus alone. Secondly, let me say a couple things to those of us who are followers of Jesus. The first is this, just as you initially gained access to the Father through Jesus, access is maintained by Jesus as well. Sometimes we, I mean, we're, we can be so clear that it's by grace only that we come into a saving relationship with God. We, we trust, we believe, we have faith, but it's all about Jesus, and we believe He got us there. But then we sometimes subtly start thinking, it's maintained by how I live my life. It's maintained by being good enough. It's maintained by going to church enough. It's maintained by all of these things. As disciples of Jesus, we do strive to love God by our obedience, but this does not maintain our connection to God. This does not maintain our access. Our ongoing access to God is maintained by Jesus and Jesus alone, just as our initial access to God was found in Jesus alone. Walk in this truth. Walk in the grace of this truth. Here's the other thing I want to say to those who are followers of Jesus, and it flows from the other two points of application, but um, make sure that the gospel we preach, the gospel we defend, is a gospel of full, unfettered access to God through Jesus alone. Make sure that we don't add anything to the gospel. It is a free gift of grace, right? It's access through Jesus Alone, And so make sure that we don't sort of subtly teach or suggest that, that access is by any other form or ritual or rule or attending a certain group or a certain church or anything like that. It's in Jesus alone. I have known people who at one time were involved in a certain Christian community. It could be a group on campus. It could be a church who, for various reasons, felt led to leave that Christian community to join another one. And when they did that, people from that first Christian community began to shun them and treat them as if they were not a believer. Why? I guess because they were no longer walking in the forms that they had walked in before. They were not living out their Christian faith in the same way that that particular group thought they ought to. That's not defending a gospel of full, unfettered access to God through Jesus alone. So let's make sure as we proclaim the gospel that it really is the gospel. It's about access to God in Jesus alone. It's not through any form. It's not through any ritual. It's not about attending a certain church. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. Stephen died for the difference between Judaism's approach to God and Christianity's. And so we need to make sure we're defending Christianity's approach to God. Full access to God through Jesus alone. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the life and death of Stephen. Thank you for the model of one who was was loyal to Jesus, and uh, in many ways, the church uh, was set on a trajectory because of Stephen's faithfulness, faithfulness unto death, 
and that he proclaimed this, this, this pure gospel, this true gospel, that it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find salvation. God, for, for any here that, that have not yet come to, to, to trust you, that would you reveal this truth that it really is that, that, that simple, that profound, what Jesus has done for us. For those of us who are, are followers of Jesus, may we continue to live in that truth, walk in that truth, and may we proclaim that gospel, uh, a gospel of just grace that, that access is found to God through Jesus, that the, the heavens are thrown wide open because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.